ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Some years ago on a visit to Rome, a local guide was able to get me and my son into the bowels of the Colosseum, into the part where they kept their animals and prisoners. She showed us a prison cell and then the winches of an ancient hand-cranked elevator that was used to lift combatants from these dungeons up onto the floor of the arena. And I tried to imagine some poor prisoner of war captured in a local uprising somewhere on the fringes of the Roman Empire, being dragged in a cage through the great metropolis of Rome, thrown into that cell under the Colosseum, then given a sword and a shield, and then winched up onto the arena to see 70,000 spectators howling for blood and then to be run through by a professional gladiator and just dying in the dust while the mob jeered. This blood sport was regarded at the time simply as entertainment with no apparent moral qualms. The Colosseum was conceived during the reign of the Emperor Vespasian during an era known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And this is the subject of Tom Holland's latest book, Tom is a very well-known historian and the author of many best-selling books on the ancient world. He's also the co-host of the staggeringly popular podcast, The Rest is History, with his friend Dominic Sandbrook. Tom, in his book, makes it clear that the Romans had very different ideas than us about what was good and upright and what was bad and deplorable. And he believes that this makes it very difficult for us to see the Romans on their own terms We've got to peer through the veil of modern morality if we're to see them not as weird aliens, but as living, breathing human beings. Tom's book is called Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. Hello, Tom. How lovely to have you on the program. Thanks very much for having me. The Romans aren't lovable to us, are they? But they are fascinating. What do you think it is about them that compels our fascination? Well, I speak for myself. I was one of those kind of little boys who was obsessed by dinosaurs and I loved them because they were fierce, they were glamorous, they were exotic, but they were also safely extinct. And I kind of progressed seamlessly from an obsession with, you know, tyrannosaurs to an obsession with Caesars. And I think that the appeal is very similar. I think that you talked about the Colosseum, uh, which of course is the great architectural star of Gladiator. And... The appeal of going to what gladiator, I think, gave us some sense of the appeal of, that it had for the Romans. That actually the truth is that although Roman morality does seem very alien to us, there is a kind of visceral sense in which spectacles of blood and glamour and terror are thrilling. And the fact that it is 2,000 years from us, I think, creates a kind of safe space. It kind of legitimises the perhaps guilty pleasure that we take in contemplating the, uh, the, the, the glamour and the terror of this great apex predator of the ancient world, the Roman Empire. This covers the years of the empire at its greatest extent. Now, these days we could get on a plane in Spain, for example, or North Africa, and be in Syria, the other end of the Roman Empire, in a couple of hours. But what do you do to try and imagine yourself into that world as an ancient person living in an empire with that kind of extent covering so much territory, such a vast swathe. I think that for most people in the Roman Empire, most people would not have had a sense of just how vast it was. But clearly there are people who who do. So I open the book with one of those people who is the Emperor Hadrian, and he is arriving at the barbarous limits of the world in Britain. 
on the banks of the Tyne, uh, which today, of course, has its great bridge, which is a, a distant echo of the bridge over Sydney Harbour. But back <laughs> then, right. there, there was no bridge. And so Hadrian commands that a bridge be built across it, and it's called the Pons Aelius, and Aelius is... Uh, Hadrian's family name so it's the kind of the the Hadrian bridge and there is also another Hadrian bridge which is in Rome itself and it's the bridge that is still there it leads over from Rome to, to, to the Vatican and the fact that you have these two bridges one in the very center of the world and one on the kind of the barbarous limits it's Hadrian's way of saying that there is nowhere so distant that Rome cannot reach it now, of course, Hadrian is famous for going to Newcastle, to, to what will become Newcastle, to the Tyne, to build his great wall, Hadrian's Wall. And this is often thought of as being a defensive structure. So this is uh, George R. R. Martin visits it and it inspires him to construct his, in his imagination, his great wall of ice in uh, Game of Thrones. But for the Romans, it was not a defensive structure. For Hadrian, it was an expression of contempt for those who lay in the badlands beyond, in what is now Scotland. And it's the equivalent, I guess, of a great tech billionaire constructing an enormous state and having state-of-the-art security equipment to ensure that people can't come in. Like the um, Roman Empire is a gated community. In other it, words. it is essentially mm. a gated community, and it's an expression of contempt for those who are not allowed in. It's an expression of contempt for those whom Hadrian is basically saying, it's not worth our while conquering you. And so in that sense, Hadrian is casting the entirety of the empire as the entirety of the world that it is worth having. It's like a great garden. The walls, the palisades, the barricades that Hadrian constructs, not just in northern Britain, but across the Rhine, along the limits of the Sahara, these are statements in wood or stone or mud that there is nothing beyond Rome, really, that is worth having. And therefore, the world is Rome. And Hadrian, because he travels from Britain to Africa, to Syria, to Egypt, to Greece, he understands what that means. He understands the vast totality of civilization that Rome's empire comprehends. And he also understands in his lights that beyond it, there is nothing. To grow up as you did in Britain is to grow up in that long-dead empire's furthest outpost, as you say. Did that fire your imagination as a boy to be able to visit such places as Hadrian's Wall and other places in London, for example, which still show evidence of the old Roman Empire? So I, I grew up very near Stonehenge, Salisbury, with its great medieval cathedral. But I have to say that it was always the Romans that most gripped my imaginings. And I vividly remember going to the most dramatic sweep of Hadrian's Wall and kind of identifying with the Roman soldiers. I imagine myself, as George R. R. Martin did when he went to there, standing on there and, and looking into the kind of the distance. And I absolutely identified myself with the occupying power. I think that part of the seductive power of Rome is that it always has that effect. I think almost invariably people do identify with Rome. But what I've tried to do in Pax is to also see it from the perspective of those who are its victims. Because a great empire inevitably is founded on exploitation. You write in Pax that it does take this effort, like I mentioned at the very beginning, to see the Romans as they really were, because there's a, a moral veil that sort of shrouds our perception of them. What is that veil? Uh, I think there are two particular veils. I think one of them is a Christian veil. Christianity is the kind of the great cuckoo in the nest 
And in the long run, it's the most enduring and transformational consequence of antiquity. But in this period, they, you know, I mentioned dinosaurs, the Romans are the dinosaurs, the Christians are the kind of the tiny mammals who are running around in the, the Mesozoic jungle. That's <laughs> who are all they are. destined to inherit the yeah, earth. They are, right. they are destined mm. to inherit the earth. But I, th I think that our perspectives and moral assumptions are so deeply Christian that we don't even recognize them as being culturally contingent. And so you need to try and kind of get rid of that Christian perspective. I think the other perspective that you have to try and get rid of is a materialist one. What do you most, mean? I mean? What I mean is that most historians are writing from a materialist perspective. They are not contemplating the possibility that the supernatural might intervene in the world of the earthly. And they are definitely not, I think, contemplating the possibility that the gods and as the Romans understood them actually existed. I think there is a temptation to think that the Romans were completely cynical about the gods. They weren't. A sense of the supernatural is everywhere in the Roman world. And unless you understand that, you don't understand the dynamics of what's going on. If we think of the Christians as being like the little mammals in the era of T-Rexes and, and other big dinosaurs, what are the Romans to the Christians in this time? How do they appear to Christians who are definitely around and starting to organise and win, winning more and more converts throughout this period? Well, so there's definitely a sense among Christians that Rome's empire is incredibly helpful in spreading the gospel. So if you think of the, the earliest Christian witness that we have, Paul, I mean, he's traveling everywhere. That's the whole point. And he is able to use the infrastructure that Rome has constructed to maintain its empire, rather in the way that, say, I don't know, Islamic radicals might use the technological infrastructure that America has constructed. There is definitely a, a sizable proportion of Christian thought that sees Rome as satanic. So um, a text that is written in this period that I cover in my book is the book of Revelation, which casts Rome as the whore of Babylon. And I think is probably the most influential anti-imperial text ever written. It kind of provides a template for the idea of empire as something monstrous, whorish, steeped in blood, drenched in gold, destined to, to fall and be overthrown. And it actually shows a very sophisticated understanding of the way that Rome's power is underpinned by the single market that it constructs. So Rome itself, the city, is imagined in the book of Revelation as a kind of monstrous tick sucking up the blood <laughs> from all the different regions of the empire. And there's a measure of truth to that because one of the, one of the things that makes Rome unbelievably prosperous in this period is that it has established a single market, particularly over the, the Mediterranean. This is the only period in history where the whole of the Mediterranean is under a unitary power. The shipping lanes can join together Spain and Syria and Greece and Egypt and Africa or whatever and centre it on Rome. And different regions can specialise. A single law ensures that people can take out a contract in Antioch and know that it will be honoured in, I don't know, Cadiz. And it's this that generates the wealth that so appalls John when, when he's writing the book of Revelation, the monstrous wealth of this empire that crucified Christ. But at the same time, I think it's impossible from our perspective in a globalised world 
not to recognise something of ourselves in that. Well, the other flip side of this is the idea that money makes you soft. In the time of Augustus, which precedes the period you've written about, Augustus the first emperor, there are people writing at the time, there are people like Cato complaining that the Romans are going yeah. soft. They're no longer these hard-handed farmers who are ready to pick up a sword and shield and go out and win territory for the empire. They're now wearing Chinese silk, although they probably didn't know it was Chinese, and they're wearing Greek modes of clothing, they're adopting Greek architecture and it's making them soft lovers of luxury. Do you detect that same anxiety going through this period of oh, Rome's golden massive. age? I mean, this is a, so this is a, a constant complaint of conservatives and the greatest of these is the greatest of Roman historians, Tacitus, who is kind of mordant account underpins so much of what I've written in this. I mean, he he he, he is a, a merciless analyst of Roman imperialism. And some of the phrases that he articulates endure to this day. So his father-in-law, Agricola, is the governor of Britain and leads the arms uh, of Rome far beyond what will become the limit of the empire with Hadrian's Wall, right the way up into the highlands and sends a fleet that circumnavigates the north of Scotland and realises that Britain is in fact an island. And there is a, a famous account of a great battle that is fought between the Romans and the Caledonians and the chieftain of the Caledonians. Tacitus imagines him talking of the Romans and saying they create a desert and call it peace. And this is a phrase that has kind of been recycled and recycled. But I think that there is a crucial difference between, if you want to call it the anti-imperialism of Tacitus and contemporary anti-imperialism. Because contemporary anti-imperialism seems to me descended from revelation. I mean, it's that Christian tradition. Specifically Christian. Yeah, it's specifically a specific anxiety, a hostility towards the manifestations of power, the, the figure of Christ on the cross. He's crucified by the security apparatus of a great empire. Yes, this is a kind of an anti-imperialist culture today, that, but it kind of very much is of Christian morality. Absolutely. So there's yeah. nothing more Western than kind of anti-Westernism. There's nothing more Western than anti-decolonisation. You know, it's a very, very kind of Western idea. Tacitus is anti-imperialism is coming from a very different place because Tacitus's anxiety is that, as you said, empire has made the Roman people soft and that it has a sapping effect. So also in his account of Agricola's term as governor of Britain, he describes how Agricola encourages the British chieftains to you know, enjoy baths and to start wearing togas and he builds them roads and things. And Tacitus says mordantly that the Britons thought that these were the markers of civilization, whereas in fact they were the markers of their servitude. And Tacitus feels that all these luxuries are the markers of Roman servitude as well. And so he, he, he writes an account of the Germans who had basically seen the Romans off. And he says... They are hardy. They are busy eating turnips and taking cold showers and doing all the things that we no longer do. They still do. And they're very, very kind of dangerous and menacing, therefore. And I think that this is why not just Tacitus, but the Roman people in general are so keen on the emperor that they describe as the Optimus Princeps, the greatest of emperors, who's a guy called Trajan, because Trajan enables even someone like Tacitus to have his cake and eat it. Because on the one hand, Trajan is a great conqueror. He leads the legions across the Danube into this region called Dacia, which is kind of roughly Romania. And it's 
tremendous fun for people back in Rome. They are getting reports from the front. Actually, Hadrian is is one guy who comes back from the front, reports it to the Senate. And this is like the, you know, the great days of the Roman Republic when Roman armies are on the march and military triumphs are being reported from all quarters. So terribly thrilling. And in due course, the drama, the blood-soaked stories that accompany Trajan's conquest of Dacia will be immortalised in stone on Trajan's column, which still stands to this day in the heart of Rome. And I'm sure you and your son saw it when you went there. So that's all tremendous. But at the same time, Dacia is very, very rich in gold and silver. And Trajan's conquest of it enables him to bring back an absolute fortune. And he lavishes this on completing the process of beautification that Augustus had begun. So Augustus's famous boast was that he had found a city of brick and he left it a city of marble. That wasn't entirely true. There was still quite a lot of marble that needed. Yeah, so Trajan (laughs) basically Mm. finishes that off. So if people think of the the opening shots of Rome in Gladiator, it's exaggerated, but in a sense, that city is what Trajan builds. So on the one hand, you have a guy who is out there in the wilds. He has a kind of military pudding bowl hairstyle People are presenting him the severed heads of Dacians and all this kind of stuff. And it's all bloodthirsty and heroic. And at the same time, he is building the world's largest complex of baths and laying on unprecedented entertainments in the Colosseum and expanding the ports uh, at the mouth of the Tiber so that ever more food can be brought in and ever more consumer durables be brought in. So he's, he's, he's letting the Romans have both. And I think that this is why he is remembered as the absolute sinister of emperors, even though he wasn't, because ultimately he he goes too far, he gets carried away, he commits that cardinal error of Western leaders, he invades, he invades Iraq. Iraq. Yes, that's it. And it all goes terribly wrong. Right. And it's actually Hadrian, who is his adoptive son and heir, who has mm. to kind of stabilise it all and, and, and get the empire back on a steady footing. But I think that it's because Trajan enables the Romans to feel simultaneously that they are still the people who conquered the empire while being able to enjoy the fruits of the empire that he is remembered in such kind of admiring terms. Your book is called Pax. It covers this famous period, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. What does peace mean to Romans? Because it is a period where there's plenty of blood being shared at this time. What does peace mean in the Roman context? So the title of the book is pretty ironic because there's actually quite a lot of war. (laughs) And I, I guess that one, an alternative translation of Pax to peace would be pacification. Peace for the Romans is something aggressive. It's something you impose. And um, so is peace like when you have, when Rome has a monopoly on violence? Yes. So absolutely. So, so the definition of peace for a Roman would basically be, it would be dependent on the emperor's monopoly of violence. Absolutely. So a legio, a legion is literally a levy. It's a levy of the Roman people. But by the time of Augustus, that is no longer the case. The empire is far too large. And basically, they need the legions away from the city, away from the centre, away from the Mediterranean, because otherwise they just cause trouble. And so Augustus stations them along what he wouldn't call the frontiers, because the Romans don't have a word for frontier. Uh, The Romans reserve the right to go anywhere that they want. But they uh, essentially are stationed in areas where there might be trouble from barbarians. And... All of these are directly under the command of the emperor. So the people who command them are his legati, his delegates, his legates. But the absolute commander is the emperor. And 
as long as the emperor maintains the monopoly of violence. So the peace is preserved. And that peace is preserved both against barbarians beyond the limits of the empire. It has to be preserved against potentially rebellious peoples within the empire. And in one terrible year, AD 69, again, it has to be established against rival Caesars. Because what happens in AD 68 is that the final blood descendant of Augustus, the Emperor Nero, dies. And with him, the line of descent from the by now deified Augustus is, is, is gone. And the argument then has to be, well, what replaces it? And the attempt to answer that question sees this terrible year, AD 69, which is commemorated as the year of the four emperors. So in Britain, we just, last year, we had the year of the three prime ministers. And it wasn't a good period, I think it has to be said, for stable government. Basically, if you have a year that is named after multiple multiple leaders, it's not good news. There's a few, few people that are unhappy about the state of things when, that, that, when that's going on. So as you say, this is where your book begins. But the death of Nero, the last of the people who can claim some kind of genetic connection to the great Augustus. And again, this is where the... Who's a god. Yeah, because this is literally, you know, this is taken literally. There is something supernatural about the bloodline of Augustus. And so Nero can lay claim to that. So, but at this point, Rome is a monarchy now, really, isn't it? But it can't call itself a monarchy because it's opposed in its bones to the idea of a monarchy. But if you've got this, you have to have this ancestral connection. You're a monarchy, aren't you, really? Well, it's, it's a monarchy, but it's not a kingship. And so there is never any definitive rule as to who the who Caesar should be. And so that makes it very, very awkward. There is no established succession. So they've got to invent what this what kind of a monarchy this is yeah, as they so, go. So there's always so, so even even with the um, the family of Augustus, there are always tensions, there are assassinations. So Caligula is murdered. Uh, Claudius is very possibly murdered. Nero commits suicide. There's a kind of undertow of violence within the house of Augustus, the family of Augustus. But once that house of Augustus is extinct, then the question is, well, who should succeed? And there are people in the Senate who say, well, maybe we could go back to a Republican form of government. But because they have no military backing, there's never any prospect of that. Well, this is it, it becomes, it? Yeah. This is it, because, I mean, it was understood or thought that the power in Rome really always lay with the Senate. What does the year of the four emperors, where you have, first of all, Nero replaced by Galba, who's knocked up down after a few months, is murdered in the street, replaced by Otho, who has to commit suicide, and Vitellius, he also dies... What does this tell us about the reality of power in Rome now, where it really lies? It, it, it tells us that Rome is a military autocracy. And that is what it tells us. And the great genius of Augustus's settlement, so he is an autocrat who comes in, establishes an autocracy on the rubble of what had been a republican system of government, but he does this and does not end up murdered as his adoptive father and great-uncle Julius Caesar had been, because he essentially downplays his own authority and pretends that the Senate is more powerful than it is. The events of AD 69 conclusively demonstrate that power has to lie with a military autocrat. And so the question that is being asked in AD 69 is which which military autocrat will emerge triumphant. And because there are various reserves of manpower, it disintegrates into open civil war. At the same time, all of the four emperors who succeed one another in AD 69 exist in the shadow of, well, specifically of Nero, but of the divine family that is now extinct. So 
Galba, who you, you mentioned, is the first emperor to succeed Nero. He is very, very self-consciously a repudiation of everything that Nero had embodied. So he's all about the cold showers. He's a kind. He's he's a, a figure from an ancient republican family. He feels basically that the Roman people have gone soft, that they need to man up, that they've had, you know, Nero has been lavishing too many circuses, giving them too much bread. And so it's not surprising that he ends up dead <laughs> very, very, very quickly. <laughs> but the Roman happen, people, they want to go back to basics. No, no. You know, <laughs> they, they want their bread, they want their circuses. And the guy who succeeds him, Otho, is a man who wears a toupee which Galba absolutely would rather, you know, I mean... We know this? Yeah. Well, (laughs) this is what Suetonius tells us. And if you look at the statues of him, he's very clearly wearing a toupee. I want to believe it. All that kind of... Mm. So he... And he's a good friend of Nero's. In fact, they'd shared a wife. And Nero had appropriated Otho's wife and packed him off to govern Portugal to get him out of the way. But Otho is kind of basically... He's a kind of mini Nero. And that's his pitch for popularity. Then you get a guy called Vitellius, who is, a, he's, a, he's a man of size, I think it would be fair to say. So the, the portrait busts of him, he looks like the kind of guy who would be hanging out in the badabing in The Sopranos. He, he, could, he could fill a doorway, he? He could absolutely fill a doorway and probably kind of break your neck with his bare hands. And he has the, the, the armies of the Rhine at his back. His armies meet with Otho's armies, um, Otho's army is defeated. Otho could have carried on the fight but commits suicide because he says that civil war is the worst fate that can be visited on a people. So actually, uh, despite the fact that he wears a toupee, he actually shows himself to be a, a, a figure of traditional Roman nobility. In his death. Yes, because he kills himself for the good of his people. And this is a, an admirable thing and everyone's rather surprised by it. And this leaves the space clear for Vitellius who then kind of lumbers southwards and is kind of torpid and inadequate. And Vitellius hadn't really wanted to become emperor because he suspected that he wasn't up to the job. But he also suspected that if he turned down the men who wanted him to become emperor, they would kill him. So so he installs himself on the Palatine. Um, and because he is not up to the job, this then provides an opening to the guy who in the long run will be the fourth and the most enduring of the uh, four emperors in the year of the four emperors, who you've already mentioned, Vespasian, the guy who will go on to build the Colosseum. And he has a vast reservoir of manpower because he has been mandated by Nero to suppress a a great uh, rebellion in the province of Judea. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. A moment ago, you mentioned the wife of Otho, who had been passed on to Emperor Nero, and 
That's a, an amazing story, what becomes of her and her doppelganger. It also reveals so much. We've been talking earlier about different ideas of morality and, yeah. and, and how you need to kind of drop your conventional <laughs> ideas, uh, whether yeah. they be Christian or, or contemporary, about what gender is, what yeah. love is, what sex is, all these things. Can you just explain the story of her and her doppelganger, please? Yeah, so I, I mean, just to preface it, I, I think that one of the fascinations of studying the Romans is it reveals to you that there are kind of no absolute uh, moral understandings about sex or gender or anything, that they are incredibly culturally contingent. So with that preface, so um, the wife of Otho, who Nero appropriates, is a woman called Papaea Sabina, who is the most glamorous woman in Rome. She is the one who, uh, not Cleopatra, who is supposed to have bathed in ass's milk to preserve her complexion. Wow. Uh, she has her own rate, brand of cosmetics that every, you know, every woman in Rome wants to copy. And she has this spectacular auburn hair, which is very, very unusual and becomes kind of incredibly fashionable. And Nero is besotted with her. She is pregnant, uh, dies. There are kind of dark rumours that Nero had come back late from the races and Papaya had nagged him and he kicked her in the stomach and so both child and mother died. That's a rumour that tells you quite a lot about how Nero is seen, but I think it's probably unfair because it's clear that Nero was obsessed by her and he gives her the most lavish funeral imaginable, incinerates kind of about, you know, half the Roman Empire's income buying incense to burn in the forum as her body lies there. And then he marries someone else, a kind of aristocratic woman, smart, witty, very much Nero's type. But there is this ache in the emperor's soul because his new wife, although a wonderful woman in many ways, does not look like Papaya. And Nero wants to go to bed with Papaya still. So he sends agents out to look for someone who looks like his dead wife. And in due course, they find someone. Now, the complication is that the person they find is not a girl, but a boy. This is not the kind of detail that is going to <laughs> stop Nero. So he has the boy castrated, painted, hair teased, arrayed in the robes of the dead empress. And from this point on, this boy is called uh, Papaya Sabina. Although Nero also gives him a kind of a kind of malignant nickname, which is Sporus, which is Greek for spunk. And so poor Sporus, when Nero commits suicide, is on hand to, to play the role of the mourning wife, tear the hair, cast, you know, cover herself with ashes, all that kind of thing. Then gets scooped up by the head of the Praetorians as a trophy of war. When Otho becomes emperor, he gets Sporus for his own. So it's weird for him. When Vitellius comes into town he can lay claim to Sporus again as a trophy of war. And he wants to make himself popular with the Roman people. He wants to show the Roman people that he's a good guy. And so he says, we will dress Sporus up as Persephone, the daughter of the goddess of the harvest who gets abducted by the king of the dead and taken down into the underworld. We'll dress her up as Persephone and we will dress a whole load of gladiators up as the king of the dead, the man who raped Persephone, and we'll put them all in the arena and we will have these gladiators gang rape Sporus to death. And at this point, Sporus understandably commits suicide. Probably only 16 or 17 at this point. That, what virtues does he believe he's upholding in, in, in ordering such a ghastly death for this poor person? I, I think there is a feeling that... The Roman people gathered as a community to watch edifying 
reproductions of myth gives them something that, that approximates to a status of the gods. So the theatre is the thing that's the virtue here? So, if you th- so you mentioned the Colosseum. This is the great amphitheatre that Rome had not previously had, and it's, constru- as everyone will know, constructed on an enormous scale. And the point of it is that it enables the Roman people to be serried in their due order. And the Romans are obsessed with hierarchy and where you stand relative to everyone else in the social pecking order. So the word censor is a, is a, is a Roman word. And it doesn't quite mean what it means for us because it's, it's associated with the idea of a census. And what a censor traditionally does is to evaluate both the wealth but also the moral standing of every citizen you put people in their place. You You put put them in their place. And the Colosseum is essentially a census in stone. So the emperor, the senate, the vestal virgins, the poor, the masses, women, slaves, they all have their correct place. And what Vespasian and Titus and then Domitian, Vespasian's younger son, do is to stage recreations of myth in the arena. And that's essentially what Vitellius has been planning to do with Paul Sporus. And by doing that, you are implying that the correct order, the order that mirrors the order of the cosmos in which the gods look down approvingly on what is happening in the globe, now the Roman people are taking part in that. And I think that in an age of civil war, this is incredibly important because civil war can only happen because the gods are disapproving. In some way, the Romans have offended. So a religio, from which we get our word religion, which is a different anachronistic Mm. mistranslation, Mm. a religio is a bond that joins people on on earth to the gods. It's kind of like an insurance policy. You You pay your premium and then the gods will look after you. So if you neglect the religiones, then you don't have your, your insurance and then terrible things happen and the gods don't look after you. So I think that the construction of the Colosseum and the staging of the entertainments in it is an attempt to, to please the gods, to establish the correct religiones. So it's not a ghastly, ghoulish spectacle. It's actually... An edifying spectacle. It is an edifying spectacle. Right, morally morally improving to see such things. Good God, this is what you mean when you say you have to really work hard at suspending modern morality if you're going to see the Romans as they saw themselves, morally and clearly. Absolutely. So there, there are Romans who, thinkers who say, everyone would agree that the Roman people, they're the most moral people in the world in the way that they, for instance, stage punishment. And, of course, the punishment of people in the arena, whether it's executions or being torn to death, pieces by beasts or fighting as gladiators, these are absolutely seen as being morally edifying and contributing towards the restabilization of a world that has been tottering. The Colosseum is built by Vespasian and it's completed under Titus, his son. And Titus inaugurates it against a background of renewed disasters. The most important, the holiest building in the whole of Rome, the great temple to Jupiter on the Capitol, has burned down twice within the period of a decade. A terrible plague has hit Rome. And in AD 79, the year that Titus becomes emperor, probably the most celebrated natural disaster in not just Roman history, but the whole of history takes place, which is the eruption of Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum. 
and the cloud of ash that that sends up into the sky, it, it causes terrifying atmospheric effects as far afield as Egypt and Syria. So for Italians, it's terrifying. For people in Rome, it's terrifying. So it represents a kind of moral catastrophe. It's a moral, absolutely it's a moral catastrophe because it wouldn't have happened otherwise. That is the whole terror of it. And it adds to the negatives in the moral ledger book because with the entombment beneath ash of Pompeii and Herculaneum, there are thousands of people who have not been given the due funeral rituals. And so their ghosts have to be presumed that they are roaming the Bay of Naples. This is a terrifying event. And gladiatorial combat, which of course is the great centrepiece of, of the Colosseum, that had begun as an, as an attempt to appease the ghosts of the dead. And this, I think, is what Titus is doing. You mentioned earlier Trajan, the emperor who's known as the best emperor. And uh, wasn't there a prayer that used to inaugurate every subsequent emperor that said, may he be as lucky as Augustus and as good as Trajan? Yes. As you say, he conquers Mesopotamia. Gets all the way down fleetingly. to the, fleetingly, fleetingly, <laughs> yeah. yes, fleetingly. He gets all the way down to the mouth of the Persian Gulf and sees a ship going off to India and says, "Oh, I wish oh, I were a young yeah. man. I'd, I'd be off, <laughs> off like Alexander to conquer India." But when he dies, his adopted son Hadrian takes over and decides to pull out of Iraq, and they go back to the border yeah. where, where Syria is, and that's obviously a very wise move. There is another god that they venerated, though, and that was Terminus, the god of boundaries. Now, as far as I'm aware, this is one of the first times where the boundaries of the Roman Empire retract. They don't go forward. Right. Now, is this a source of anxiety for anyone at all? Have they noticed this? It's a huge embarrassment. And what adds to the embarrassment is that it's not only Mesopotamia that is on fire, so also is much of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. So even as the insurgency is is raging in, in Mesopotamia, you have Judean settlements across North Africa are kind of rising in terrible ways. And Hadrian, when he becomes emperor, is faced with the absolutely credible prospect that Roman control over the eastern half of the empire might completely collapse. And so he has to move very, very fast and very ruthlessly. That is why he withdraws troops from Mesopotamia. He just doesn't have the manpower that would be required to pacify it pulls it back and he can then use these forces to crush the bushfires of Judean rebellion. From his point of view, it's a very sensible retrenchment. Right. But but it it is an embarrassment because, you know, he is succeeding an emperor who is famous for his conquests. And the first thing that he does is to pull back from these conquests. So what he does is what an emperor can can always do in in, in a state of crisis, which is to seize control of the narrative. So he goes back to Rome. There is no mention at all of what he has done in Mesopotamia. A great triumph, this um, celebratory parade marking military conquests through the streets of Rome. There is no mention of the retreat at all. And, of course, there are people in the know, Tacitus, for instance, who's furious about it. And Tacitus will go on to write a very malevolent portrayal of the Emperor Tiberius, who succeeded Augustus and who did not pursue the policies of conquest that Augustus had done. And it's pretty clear that Tacitus's portrait of Tiberius is also a portrait of Hadrian, as negative as, as, as you can possibly make it. But the Eastern Frontier is an exception. When he goes to Germany and he orders a palisade to be built beyond the Rhine, or when he goes to Britain and orders his wall to be built, or when he goes to the southernmost reaches of uh, his African province and hails the troops there for the role that they are playing in guarding Rome's southern flank, he is not saying that the age of 
conquest is dead, that Rome has to adopt a defensive role. What he is saying is that Rome's empire is equivalent to everything that is worth ruling and that nothing beyond it is worth having. And that's a kind of very different perspective. It's I mean, hard to the, argue Mesopotamia is not worth having, though. Right, but, he, yeah. but he's keeping quiet about Mesopotamia yeah. because that is an embarrassment. And, of course, the practical consequences are the same, that, that you know, effectively frontiers are established, permanent, stable frontiers are established. But that is not how Hadrian, I think, genuinely sees it. And Hadrian can do this because I think the soldiers agree with him. So we have the record of a talk that he gives to the soldiers in Africa. He praises them for their role in standing sentry over the great garden of, of the world. And the soldiers applaud him, partly because they're touched that he has come all this way to tell them that, but also because Hadrian is a soldier's soldier. He would never get any soldier to do anything he wouldn't do. Um, if they have to walk 25 miles and eat eat soldiers' rations, Hadrian will do it. And a marker of Hadrian's identification with the common legionaries is that he is the first emperor to be shown wearing a full beard. And a beard is the marker of a legionary. However, it is also simultaneously the marker of something very different, which Hadrian also identifies himself with, which is... His Greekness. His Greekness, because mm. a beard is the marker of a philosopher. Mm. And from youth, Hadrian had been kind of notorious for his identification with Greece. So he was called the Griculus, the little Greek. Hadrian is the great sponsor of Greek culture in a way that no emperor had been before. You know, he was seen as a, a, an embodiment of paradoxes. He could be simultaneously the friend of the soldiers and a friend of philosophers. I don't think that Hadrian sees it as being paradoxical because he sees his ability to keep the garden secure as being absolutely going with the grain of his enthusiasm for the fruits and the flowers of that garden. And he sees Greece as being the great flower, really, in that garden. There are two uprisings in the province of Judea in the course of this period you've covered in your book. There's one under Nero and another one under Hadrian. Judea is a remote province of the empire at this point, and you call them, you're, you're quite careful to call the people of this area Judeans rather than Jews. Can you just explain your thinking behind that? Yeah, so I think English is obviously saturated with assumptions that have accumulated over the, the course of the centuries. And so in using English to refer to, 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 to Roman concepts and categories, there's always a kind of risk of anachronism. If you called Gaul France, the anachronism would be evident. It, it's less clear, I think, if you refer to the inhabitants of uh, the province of Judea as Jews, because Jews do see themselves standing in a line of, of direct descent from the inhabitants of Judea in the Roman period. But I think that for all that, the word Jew brings too much kind of modern baggage. And above all, there's a sense that Jews are participants in a religion and that therefore if you talk about the Jewish uprising against the Romans there's a sense baked into it that there is something about Jewish religion Judaism if you want to call it that which again is not a word that would have been recognized by the Romans in the first century um, AD there's something baked into it that makes this uprising inevitable but I don't think that that is true at all the Judeans are definitely seen by the Romans as being weird and odd 
but they see everyone who it's is weird. a Roman as being weird and odd. So, you know, the Judeans may worship only one god, mm. but at least they don't kind of dress up as women and castrate themselves in the way that Syrians are prone to doing. At least they don't worship gods with animal heads as the Egyptians do. At least they don't kind of sacrifice people in bogs like the Britons do. And, and more than that, they were good taxpayers. Up and, they and, are, And, and yes. good, good citizens of the empire. They are. So, so, and, and yet they're overtaxed under Nero, and so th- there's this terrible, awful, catastrophic uprising. And, and you say this is, you say these events constitute the most consequential events of this whole period. Can you explain why? Because what happens is it's a series of cascade events. There's a protest against taxes. There's a confrontation in the city of Jerusalem. A legion is sent to pacify it. Insurgents massacre the legion. This then means that the Romans are definitely going to come and it's going to be incredibly punitive. And so the Judeans end up fighting a war that they cannot win. And it culminates in the complete destruction of Jerusalem. And part of what gets incinerated when the Romans destroy Jerusalem is the temple, which is the great cultic centre. It had originally been the Temple of Solomon. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians and now it's been destroyed, it's been rebuilt and now it's destroyed again by the Romans. And with its incineration, the Judeans are faced with the prospect of losing what every people have, which is a cultic centre in which they can commune with their God. You know, they're not unusual in that. And so for the Romans to obliterate a metropolis, the mother city of a people, is essentially to, in the long run, to kill them. So the Romans, for instance, had destroyed Carthage. They'd wiped out its temples. And Carthaginian identity, in the long run, vanishes. And this is what the Romans think that they are doing to the Judeans. The Judeans have something that enabled them to, to maintain their traditions, which is their scriptures, which the Carthaginians had not had. And it's the transmutation of an understanding and a relationship to the divine that is focused in a cult centre, namely the temple, towards one that is focused in scripture, which means that the Judeans, as they were, will become what we might now call the Jews. So I think that there is a really significant difference that you miss if you assume that nothing, there's no great change that happens. now. And the fr- Romans changed the name of the province. Too. Right. So, so in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem, the Judeans hold on to the hope that they will be allowed to rebuild Jerusalem because this had happened before. Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians and then Cyrus, the king of Persia, allows them to go back and rebuild it. And there is the constant hope that they will be allowed to do this. And Hadrian, to begin with, is seen as being quite pro-Judeans. You know, his stabilisation of the eastern half of the empire, he applies carrots as well as sticks to the Judeans. And so when he's in Greece, he restores and, and returns to Athens a dignity that it hadn't had for a long time. And he then goes on, continues on his travels, comes to Judea, and there are Judean leaders who hope that he is coming there to announce that he is going to rebuild Jerusalem. Instead, what he does, because he thinks that it will help reconcile the Judeans to Roman rule, is that he reconsecrates what had been Jerusalem as a, a Roman colonia, so an implantation of basically the construction of a Roman city complete with temples, baths, Latin, on the site of what had been Jerusalem. And he calls it Aelia Capitolina, so Aelia after his family name, Capitolina after Jupiter worshipped on, on, the, on the capital. So he's basically calling it Hadrian, Jupiter. And this obviously goes down 
like a cup Very of badly. cold sick in Judea. <laughs> They're not, and so there is a kind of a smouldering insurgency. Hadrian continues on travels. He goes to Egypt. He goes back to Greece. And while he's in Greece, he's brought the news that what had seemed to be a containable terrorist insurgency has exploded with full-scale atrocities into open warfare. And for Hadrian, this is a humiliation. He's been caught by surprise and he has to summon troops from across the empire. He even has to summon a commander all the way from Britain. And the process of suppressing this rebellion is terrible. And the rabbis will commemorate the slaughter. They say that so many were killed that Hadrian built a wall of the bodies rising that stretched for 40 miles. So this Hadrian and walls, he's all about the walls. Mm. And at the end of it, the destruction is so complete that Hadrian announces that Judea no longer exists and he gives it a new name, Syria Palestina. It is Hadrian who gives to what had been Judea the name of Palestine. That, that is the most consequential episode of Hadrian's rule. The roots of the, the bloodshed in Gaza and, and Israel and Palestine at the moment reaches back to the time of Hadrian. It reaches back to the time of of Titus. And so that's why I say that it is so consequential. Just finally, the final point I suppose to make about Hadrian, because your book ends with his death, is that you see his reign as a period when the whole idea of what it means to be Roman extends and inflates and becomes a much bigger thing than being attached to a mere city halfway down the Italian boot. That's, that's probably almost as consequential, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge thing and it's a quite a subtle thing at the same time. So what is, what is a Roman? Uh, a Roman, is it someone who's born in Rome uh, or is it someone who can claim the citizenship of Rome? I mean, already by the time of Augustus, there are Roman citizens who, you know, there might be Gauls, there might be Spaniards or whatever. By the time of Hadrian you get to see people whose prime language is is Greek rather than Latin becoming not just senators but consuls, so the highest kind of magistracy in Rome. And Hadrian leans into this. This is his kind of great policy shift, is that rather than finding it a bit of an embarrassment, he essentially sees the glories of Greek culture as redounding to the benefit of Rome. So this is why he goes to Athens and he sets up this kind of Greek equivalent of the European Union, all these old city rivals, Sparta and Thebes and so on. They're all to be part of a pan-Hellenion, a kind of a, a, a Greek union. And he lavishes Athens with gorgeous architecture and cutting edge infrastructure. And he sponsors Greek festivals and Greek philosophy and all this kind of thing. And he makes Greeks feel valued by Caesar. And over the course of the decades, the centuries, and then the millennia that follow, this idea that a Roman can be Greek speaking will have momentous consequences. Because when in 1453, the final capital of the Roman Empire, Constantinople, when it falls, it is Greek speaking. They are Romeoi, they are Romans, but they are Greek speakers. And there is a kind of foreshadowing of that future in the rule of Hadrian that is, again, I mean, you know, it is looking forward to a kind of very profound future. It's a lovely anecdote from the early 20th century uh, in someone's book, I can't remember whose, but the new Greek navy emerging into its own and it arrives on one of the islands off the coast of southern Turkey, off Anatolia, and there are 
Greek-speaking people there who formerly Byzantines, if you like, and they arrive and all the kids come down and they see the sailors and they say, so I say, oh, what, are you, what, are you, what are you kids coming down? They say, we've come down here to see the Greeks. And the sailors say, well, you're speaking Greek, aren't you Greek? And they go, oh, no, we're Romans. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, the Ottomans emerged from the, the Sultanate of Rum, Rome, the Roman quality of Constantinople is very important to Mehmet II, the the conqueror of Constantinople. So, so Rome so, becomes essentially a concept, like an ideal, like a civilizational term, like Westerner, in other words. Yeah, absolutely. The Roman quality of what becomes the Byzantine Empire is, is something that should never be forgotten. Tom, what a pleasure it is to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tom Holland's book is called Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. 